0: It is uh, the Christmas season, as you're well aware, and Christmas season means cold and flu season as well, right? All of those uh, nasty germs are floating everywhere, Uh, yet, uh, you know, we live in a great time with regard to medical advances, don't we? There There are just so many things available. You walk into the grocery store and there's a reminder, you know, get your flu shot or whatever, and... You know, there was we don't think that much about flu, but there was a time when flu was a really quite a serious uh, illness, and um, and took uh, many, many lives. But in God's good providence, we've made a lot of strides medically. But uh, you know, it was only a generation ago, just kind of thinking along these lines, that uh, the word polio struck fear into uh, people's hearts. My uh, mother is a polio survivor she uh, encountered the uh, disease as a child and and again by god's grace and good providence she is able to walk today she did live and she is able to walk uh, today but it was a really devastating disease just a relatively short time ago in fact polio was such a scary disease uh, back in those days that uh, their minister wouldn't even come and visit at the house when they found out that, uh, that she had polio. He was afraid, and he wouldn't come. And uh, the neighbors, uh, when they walked by the house, they would cross over the street to pass by the house. They, they were deathly afraid of this disease. And so as they were walking down the sidewalk, and they'd come to, to the house where my mother grew up, uh, there, was a, there was a mark the house and they would cross over and go by the house on the opposite side of the road that's how scary that disease was and that's only just a generation or so ago so times have changed and uh they've changed for the better amen open your bibles up to uh, matthew chapter 8 because i want to look with you this morning at another really scary disease another really scary disease And the Gospel of Matthew is something that uh, we have been working through together over at Foothill for several years now, and uh, we are really enjoying our time in that Gospel. So I want to bring to you a message that I preached over there a few months ago out of Matthew chapter 8 here about Jesus healing the leper. We're going to be looking at Matthew 8 and verses 1 through 4. Now, a bit of a background, Matthew's gospel was written for a specific purpose, and that purpose was to demonstrate for all who had eyes of faith to see that Jesus is the long prophesied Messiah of Israel. He is the one that the Old Testament prophets had spoken of repeatedly and said there is a one coming, a future king of the line of David, but that he will exceed and excel anything that David's kingdom ever knew. And in many places in those Old Testament prophecies, it it speaks about this future kingdom, this coming king, and that his kingdom will be a a place of of untold blessing. It'll be a place like none other that the world has ever known or ever seen. All of the the effect of Adam's fall into sin and how it brought uh, destruction and cursing upon this creation and sickness and disease and death and sin and all of these things that came in as a result of Adam's fall will be reversed in that future kingdom. When that great messianic king comes, when when Christ himself, the, the Messiah, and the word Christ means Messiah, when that one comes and is seated upon that throne, it will be a time of amazing peace and prosperity. Matthew is recording for us here in chapters 8 and 9 a, a series of miracles. And as he, as he develops his theme in this gospel, he, he includes these miracles here in this chapter, and there are nine of them. And he includes these miracles in chapters 8 and 9 because, because it demonstrates a, a, a glimpse of what Messiah's kingdom is going to be like. It's as it were a peeling back of the curtain and and, and glimpsing into the unknown and to see what it will be like when Messiah comes. And so Matthew records for us these examples of, of Jesus' authority, Jesus as the Messiah, His authority over disease, over nature, over demons over sin and over death and he and he and he does that so that as we as we examine these things together as we read these things and and we are amazed by what we read we can come to only one conclusion this one is the long promised deliverer he is the great king of israel we might recognize jesus as messiah now, the first of these miracles is located here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. And I've, and I've just broken it down into, into three you know, basic uh, outline points just to kind of hang your thoughts on as we work our way through it together. So, let's take a look at the first one in verses 1 and 2. And I'm, and I'm calling this the, the leper's courageous request. So look at the account together. Let's just begin by thinking about the leper's courageous request. Verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, and that's a reference back into chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him. Stop there. And a leper came to him. Immediately now we are we are introduced in this text to that dread disease of leprosy. Leprosy. Even today, to 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 talk about leprosy is to, is to make people's blood run a little cold. It is a scary thing. To be a leper. What is leprosy? We don't see much of it in our certainly in our society. So so what is Leprosy. All I went on the internet, you know, and the beauty of the internet, you can look up anything. It doesn't mean it's true, but you can look it up. But uh, this this website was credible, so I think this stuff is pretty true here. What is leprosy? Well, modern leprosy is uh, is known as uh, Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease, and it's named that after a 19th century Norwegian physician who did a lot of work in this area and. Um, really pioneered our modern understanding of leprosy. But it is a disease caused by a bacteria. So it is a bacterial disease, and it it causes damage to the skin and to the peripheral nervous system. That's the main symptoms of leprosy. It's a very slow-developing disease. According to this website, anywhere from six months to 40 years after first contact with the disease, it takes that long for it to run its course. It results in skin lesions and, and deformities, generally affecting the extremities of the body. So the toes, the, the fingers, the nose, the ears, things like that. And these these deformities are, can be quite disfiguring. Quite disfiguring. And and it's because of of the of the fact that it causes such serious a deformity and damage to the human body and, and the results of which are so unsightly and, and may I even say gross to look at that, that uh, most cultures throughout history have, have segregated lepers off into a, into a colony or a place of their own. They won't let them mingle in society. It's a, it's a very terrible disease. But how is it transmitted? How do you, how do you get this thing? And here's the interesting thing about that is they're not really sure. They're still really not sure. You read through this website, and I'll, I'll read you a couple of quotes here, but, but I want you, as I read it, I want you to notice the use of the words suggest, uh, speculate, apparently. So just kind of be listening for those kinds of words. How is leprosy transmitted? Well, quote, researchers suggest that the bacteria are spread person to person by nasal secretions or droplets, you know, like sneezing. However, the disease is not highly contagious like the flu, so they're not really sure. They speculate that the infected droplets reach other people's nasal passages and, and begin the infection there. Some investigators suggest the infected droplets can infect others by entering into breaks in the skin. But the bacteria apparently cannot infect intact skin. So here we are. We're 2,000 years removed from this account. And our best medical science, what they say is, we think it's this, but we're not sure, and it might be that, and we really don't know. And it can take up to 40 years after you contact it. Now, how many people in 40 years have you been around that have sneezed? Right? Crazy. We're not sure. There's a whole lot of not sure about this. And yet it is such a terrible, terrible disease. I have a quote for you. This one I think we'll put up for you. It's a description of leprosy. And it was written by a medical missionary doctor some time ago. This is what he says after his working with lepers for a number of years. Quote, As the sickness progresses... The thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see that the person in this pitiable, pitiable condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can't even smell it. For the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, that's the area where they produce speech, The leper's voice acquires a a grating quality. Just awful, awful, awful disease to be afflicted with. So serious is this disease, both in terms of its effect upon the individual and upon society at large, that in the Old Testament, God set aside two lengthy chapters in the book of Leviticus dealing with leprosy how to diagnose it, how to detect it, and then how a, a person can be ceremonially cleansed from it should they ever recover. 116 verses in Leviticus, chapters 13 and 14, devoted to this. 116 verses. Now you think with me for a minute. How many verses are, are devoted to the creation of the universe in Genesis chapter 1? Right? 31 verses. Genesis chapter 2, the the first uh, wedding and and, uh, and the creation of Eve, 25 verses. The fall of man, chapter 3, 24 verses. 116 verses. 116 verses devoted to this terrible, terrible disease. It's a very, very significant issue, biblically. A very significant issue. According to Leviticus chapter 14, to, to touch a leper was to become defiled. It was to become defiled. And to become defiled meant to become ceremonially unclean or impure and to thus be, not be allowed into the worship of God's people. You would, be, you would be separated from that. You could not enter into worship. You must wait until you've gone through the various rituals of cleansing before you could come back to the people. Because leprosy defiled in this way, the, the law, Mosaic law required that there would be a priest who would very, very carefully investigate any possible outbreak of leprosy. Now you're doing that through the Bible reading, right? So you've read Leviticus this year? That's a really stimulating uh, study to read in the morning for your devotions, right? Remember there's a hair in it, if the hair is yellow or the hair is white, you know, there's a patch on the skin, you, you know what I'm talking about? And you go, yay, yay, yay. That and a cup of coffee, and I'm ready to go for the morning. But it's very detailed. Very, very detailed. So that the priest might have guidance in to know and understand this disease. If it's interesting, Leviticus tells us if after two separate quarantines. The priest determines that the person has leprosy. So there's there's two separate quarantines and examinations following each one. If the priest determines after that that the person has leprosy, then they're declared to be a leper. And when they're declared to be a leper, it is like a death sentence. It is like a death sentence. They are now, according to Leviticus, required to go about with clothes torn, uh, hair disheveled, They are to cover the lower part of their face with a handkerchief, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? you think about the modern uh, medical, say, maybe it's nasal secretions. But they have to cover their nose and mouth with a handkerchief. And they are required to live outside the camp. And they are to cry out, unclean, unclean, whenever anyone approaches them. These are the rules. By the time of the New Testament... The rabbis taught that a a leper could come no closer to you than six feet. They were not to approach a a normal person or a person who not a leper. They could not come any closer than six feet unless the wind is, you know, unless they're they're, uh, upwind of you and the wind is blowing from them towards you, in which case the distance is increased to 150 feet. They can't get any closer to you than 150 feet on a breezy day. We also are told by um, commentators that, it's, that it was not unheard of at all for, for people to throw rocks at lepers in order to drive them away. They didn't want them anywhere near. Remember I told you, they'd, they'd cross over the street to go by my mother's house as a child. They would throw rocks in the New Testament at lepers in order to drive them off like you would a wild dog. It's a terrible, terrible disease. Most people of this uh, time, they considered leprosy to be a direct Punishment of God upon their sin, and therefore the only the only healing, the only hope they had was for for God Himself, and it was and it was so unlikely and so difficult to be healed from this disease that it was the equivalent of being raised from the dead. It was like being raised from the dead. It required God Himself to directly intervene on your behalf. Otherwise, you operate for the rest of your days under a sentence of the living dead. Now, we don't know for sure whether the leprosy we read of in the New Testament is the exact equivalent of what the modern medical people call Hansen's disease or not. We're not sure. It's debatable. But what is not debatable certainly is the physical, the emotional, the relational, and the spiritual devastation that a diagnosis of leprosy would mean To the individual who heard it. When those words came out of that priest's mouth. You are a leper. They might as well have a funeral service for you. They might as well have a funeral service. You are the walking dead. Take a look back now here into chapter 8 and verse 2. A leper came to him. And bowed down before him and said, said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can make me clean. What a courageous request this man has. Now, as we, we look at this request and, and think about this request, there's some observations, I think, that are, that are worthwhile noting here. This is, a, this is a reverent request. A reverent request. Notice how he he comes in it and it says that he he bowed down before him. You see that? He bowed down before him. Literally in the the Greek, he bowed and he remained bowed before him. It's, it's It's the same verb that's used to speak of worship. He fell at his feet. He fell at the feet of Jesus. And he calls out to him, Lord, Lord, Messiah, King. If you are willing, you can make me clean. It's a reverent request. It's a humble request. Notice he doesn't offer Jesus any any reasonings. He doesn't say, Jesus, listen, I've got three kids at home. They're, They're dependent upon me. And, and because of leprosy, I, I have lost all ability to be employed. I have no way to, to provide for my wife and my children. They're now, they're now forced to beg on the streets. Please. Nothing. He doesn't offer them any reasons, any justifications. He doesn't trumpet his own righteousness. He doesn't come to him with anything. He just begs him to look favorably upon him. It is a humble Request. There's nothing in this man's hands, figuratively speaking. Nothing to offer. It's a bold request. It's a bold request. For him to come before Jesus is to, is to violate the Mosaic law. They are, they are to stay separated. They are to be yelling out, unclean, unclean. The, the rabbis taught at least six feet and probably 150 is better. And yet he comes. He comes boldly right into the presence of Messiah finally it's believing it's a believing request right he he is he is deeply convinced that Jesus can do something for him that Jesus can can make him clean now it's interesting because this is this is likely the first instance of Jesus cleansing a leper this is not a big healing service where there have been, you know, thousands of people have been parading up front and Jesus has been touching them and you know one person is getting healed after another and you know he's along the end of a long line of lepers. Nothing like that, nothing like that at all. He just he just comes reverently, humbly, boldly, and believingly into the presence of Messiah, and and he petitions him, Jesus, if you are willing. You can make me clean. You can make me clean. It's an interesting expression there. You can make me clean, by the way. And the reason it's interesting is because the New Testament, when it speaks about the cure of leprosy, it, it always refers to it as being made clean. Being made clean. It, it, as opposed to other diseases where they're talked about being cured. It never speaks of leprosy as, as something they are cured from. It's something they are cleansed from. They're cleansed from it. And that makes it really interesting because... A person becomes so defiled by that disease that that it it becomes a perfect illustration of the ravages of sin. It's really the perfect illustration of sin. Sin defiles. Sin deforms. Sin bends us and twists us and and turns us into into a gross caricature of who we really ought to be as men and women created in the image of God. And so leprosy provides just that perfect, vivid illustration of the effect of sin. Leprosy also separates from society and and from God, and, and sin separates, doesn't it? It separates us from God first and from each other. Terrible disease. So he comes with this courageous request Let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus responds compassionately. It's Jesus' compassionate response in verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him. He stretched out his hand, and he, and he touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And about three months later, the disease ebbed away. Is that what it says? No. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. This is an incredible encounter. Incredible encounter. I mean, based on what we know about leprosy, what we have just learned here a little bit earlier, this is incredible. I mean, Jesus could have healed the man with a word, right? Be cleansed. I mean, he heals long distance, no problems. Yet he doesn't do it that way. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man. See it there, verse 3? He stretched out his hand. Why do he have to stretch? Well, Because the guy's laying at his feet. The guy's laying there at his feet. So he, he condescends, he, 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 he bows, as it were, down to, to be able to contact the man. He stretches out his hand and he touches him. Touches him. This man was despised, this man had been cut off from society. It's likely this man had had not felt the joy of of human contact in a very long time. We're told over in Luke's Gospel, where Luke has a parallel account in in Luke 5 and verse 12, that the man was full of leprosy. Full of leprosy. The disease was in an advanced stage. We don't know how long. Years? Perhaps. For years he had been cut off from all human society, all human kindness, all human love. You know, it's so important to touch. And yet this man, there's no touch. Until Jesus sticks out his hand and touches him. Why did he do it? Why why didn't Jesus touch him? Why Why didn't Jesus just heal him with a word? He heals others that way. Why does he touch this man? Well, we don't have to really speculate because Mark tells us in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, which is another parallel account, it, it says there, Mark tells us that Jesus is moved with compassion for this man. He is moved with compassion. And it's this compassion that he, that he feels for this one who is, who is so broken that causes Jesus to, to defy the laws of defilement. And to touch the leper, to touch the leper. I mean, the Levitical law, you're not supposed to do that. And yet Jesus stoops, extends his hand, touches the man immediately. Immediately, the man is healed. Now, question, you might be thinking to yourself, well, if Jesus touches this guy, Who's, who's defiled and, and the law says you can't touch him and if you become if you in contact with him, according to chapter 13 of Leviticus, you become defiled yourself. How could that be? How could Jesus become defiled? Well, beloved, he didn't. So this is what's really cool about this. When Jesus touched the leprous man, the, the disease of leprosy was consumed. It was consumed. Look at it. Immediately his leprosy was, was cleansed. It, Jesus didn't become defiled by touching the man. The man became holy, as it were, by Jesus touching him. All of the blackness of this disease doesn't transfer to Jesus. Jesus consumes it in the, in the purity of, of Christ Himself he cleanses this man. Beloved, only the only God can touch what is unholy and render it holy. And render it holy. Praise God. Praise God. Immediately, notice that immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You think about that. All all of the grotesque skin lesions. All of, all of the nerve damage, all the consequent deformities and, and ulcers and sores and all of the things that accompany this terrible disease. Gone. Just like that. Such is the power of Jesus to heal. It is instantaneous. It is complete. And it is irreversible. This man is cleansed. He's cleansed. Wow. The leper's courageous request. Jesus' compassionate response. And then finally, verse 4, Jesus' strange command. Strange command here in verse 4. Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. See to it that you tell no one. But go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That's kind of odd, don't you think? I mean, Jesus is, is moving about Galilee... He is, he is preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He's, he's announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand in the presence of the king himself. He is demonstrating his kingly authority by all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders that he's doing. And yet he tells this man, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what I have done. That's strange, don't you think? Well, you wouldn't be alone if you thought that strange because Jesus' brothers thought that was strange too. And over in John's gospel, they tell Jesus, they say, you know, brother, anyone who's looking to be well-known doesn't hang out in the backwaters of Galilee. You need to get out of Jerusalem and do something really exciting down there and then they'll follow you. And Jesus says to his brothers, he says, whoa, you know, this is not my time. Not now. Not now. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's what's going on here. This is still reasonably early in his what's called Galilean ministry. He spent about 18 months of his three-plus-year public ministry uh, preaching and teaching in in the north part of Israel, in Galilee. This is reasonably early in that time. And and so I think Jesus is, is being cautious here because he does not want to whip the crowds up too big yet. I doesn't want to whip them up too much. An untimely surge in, in popularity could have been misinterpreted by Rome as a threat to the Roman government. I mean, after all, if you, if you start talking about kings, and this is our king, right? Rome doesn't like that. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're content to let you live and mind your own business as long as you do what they tell you to do and you don't start. Talking about revolutions. We see this, this basic idea. You can turn here if you'd like or not, but in John chapter 6. And admittedly here, I'm doing a little bit of uh, sanctified speculating, but that's all right. I'm not too far out on a limb, I don't think. In John chapter 6 and verse 15, this is after the uh, the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 15 of John 6, it it says, so Jesus, after he fed the 5,000... And by the way, uh, that's 5,000 men when you include the women and children. Maybe as much as 20,000 people from a little boy's lunch, right? A couple of sardines and a few tortillas. And, and he, that's what it is. And he feeds this crowd. So verse 15, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there was this this uh, growing sense there that they were going to take this this man... And they were going to force him to become the king and to throw off the rule of Rome. Over in chapter 11, verse 48, you can see one other place where it kind of indicates that this this is running in the background at least. Chapter 11, verse 48. This is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is right near the end of his public ministry, just a few months to go. Now, verse 47, the chief priests and Pharisees convene a council. They're saying, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. There it is in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They'll take away the temple and they'll take away the nation. So perhaps that's what's going on here back in Matthew 8 is it's still reasonably early and Jesus doesn't doesn't want to get things too overheated too quickly. So maybe that's... Why he tells this guy, "Don't do this," but instead, but instead, back to Matthew eight and verse four, instead, go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Notice to them, present the offering as a testimony to them. So this man's supposed to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's not like getting on a fifteen freeway, you know, and two exits. In your eyes. This is a long trip. This is a long trip. You are to to make preparation necessary to take the long trip from Galilee to the south down to Jerusalem. And when you get there, you are to show yourself, and I want you to look closely at the text here. I want you to show yourself to, and not it doesn't say a priest. It says what? The priest. Definite article. The priest. There's, There's a certain priest. That you need to show yourself to what priest? Well, the priest who is responsible for determining whether your leprosy has been cleansed or not. You see, not every priest is a is a leprosy specialist. We, we kind of understand that, right? You go to the doctors, and you know you got certain specialties there in the medical field. They they give themselves to to really. Uh, uh, in the, in the examination of a certain disease, and so they become really good at it. Well, when it comes to leprosy, there's, a, there's like a, a, a leper priest. He's not a leper himself, but, but he, he's been around it enough that he really understands the disease and he knows what to look for. So you go to him. Go to the priest, the leper priest, the particular priest, the one who's, the one who's been designated and trained to deal with these matters and can certify that you have been cured. Present the offering that Moses commands back in Leviticus 13 and 14. Then look at that last little clause there. As a testimony to them. Go to the priest, singular, and and be certified that you're healed. Present the offering as a testimony to them, plural. Who's the them? It's the Jewish leadership. It's the... Sanhedrin, it's the, it's the 70, the, the leaders and rulers of Israel made up of, the, of Pharisees and, and Sadducees, scribes. You are, to, you are to go to them. First go to the priest. He examines, he certifies, yes, you have been cleansed. And, and go ahead and present the offering. And by the way, the only one who can cleanse a, a leper is who? Speak to me. God himself. Only God cleanses lepers. So go present yourself. Be examined. You've been cleansed. They're going to say, what happened? You're going to say, well, you see, it was interesting. There was this Galilean carpenter. You should have seen him. His hands are kind of gnarly, you know, and just kind of walks around teaching. And he healed me. What did he do? Touched me. And I'm cleansed. Touched me and I'm cleansed. This is a way for Jesus to to present himself as Messiah into the very courts of power of the nation. It's It's like a way to get into the White House and preach the gospel directly to the president. It's so cool. Go down there. Do what you're supposed to do. We find out in the uh, parallel accounts he doesn't do what he's told. Can't keep his mouth shut. He's blabbing everywhere. Jesus becomes so popular. It says he can't even you know, walk publicly into the towns and villages anymore. They, they're swarming him. But he did evidently go forward with it, and he does go to Jerusalem, it appears. Because Luke tells us, it's really interesting. Luke tells us in uh, Luke chapter 5, and verse 17. I'm not going to turn you there, but it's a it's parallel account. Luke tells us that, that after this event... Jesus is is still in Galilee, and and he's he's ministering there in Galilee and a delegation of of scribes and Pharisees. These are are the people who are are, are charged with keeping track of the Old Testament. And a group of them, drawn from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, travel to Galilee to investigate Jesus. Check them out. And they arrive right in time to witness what Matthew uh, recounts for us here in in chapter 9 and verses 1 through 8, which is the healing of the paralytic. You know, that's the guy, remember, where they opened up the roof and lowered him down? You Remember this, right? And Jesus says to him, you know, your son, son, your sins are forgiven. And they look at him and they go, what are you, crazy? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. That's blasphemy. And Jesus said, hey, so you'll know I have the power to forgive sins? Pick up your bed and Walk. Picks up his bed and he walks. Right? Who can forgive sin? Talk to me. Who can forgive sin? Only God. Who can heal a leper? Only God. He's just putting on these displays. Putting on these displays. But, but you know how Israel will respond? Hands over their eyes, fingers in their ears. Don't confuse me with the truth. My mind's made up. How will we respond? How will we respond? You know, you go through this, uh, this section here and you encounter this, and you're just amazed. You're just amazed to come face to face with Jesus. But I don't want to leave it there. I don't want to leave it here just as, wow, you know, 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth, he, he like, can I hear this? He cleansed this leper and he, he touched him and immediately the disease is cleansed. Him. Wow. Let's take it another step. Let's take it another step. You know, I said earlier that, that, that leprosy is, a, is the perfect illustration of what? Sin. It is the perfect illustration of sin. Sin pollutes Sin defiles, sin bends, it twists, it deforms. It cuts us off from God and from other people. It's all there. And just like a a leper cannot be healed, and by the way, they still can't heal leprosy. I guess I didn't say that earlier, but probably figured that part out, right? They're still speculating too much about it. They can't heal it. Only God. So let's apply this a little bit. Jesus does not shrink back from moral pollution. He didn't shrink back from from the leper who came to him in faith. He didn't go, ooh, are you kidding me? Be cleansed. Right? Right? Reaches down and touches the man. That's why Jesus is with moral pollution. With sin, He, 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 he doesn't shrink back from sinners when we, when we come to Him in faith. Humbly, reverently, boldly. Not, not claiming anything to give to Him. Jesus, you, you, know, you should save me because I'm a good guy. I'm not a good guy. Jesus doesn't shrink back. See, beloved, what this means is you you don't clean yourself up to come to Jesus, right? You know these things. You don't don't cleanse yourself. If I could just stop doing these these things and thinking these thoughts and so forth, then then God would receive me. Are you kidding me? Just as I am. Just as I am. I come into the presence of God and, and He cleanses me from all of my my filth, my moral pollution. Jesus says it this way in John's Gospel. John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Isn't that a great promise? When you come to Jesus, you don't ever have to worry that He is repulsed by you by your sin. His arms are open wide. His heart of compassion flows. If you will but come to Christ. Beyond that, Jesus is moved by our sufferings. He was moved by this man's sufferings in leprosy. Moved with compassion, Mark tells us. Listen, he is moved by my suffering and he is moved by yours. It touches his heart. Touches his heart. You're broken and defiled by sin. Isn't that right? Sometimes you think, I don't even like myself when you're really honest about it. but God is moved. Jesus is moved by your suffering. There's a song we sing over at Foothill. And uh, Thomas, you'd like it. It was... You know, written 150 years ago. Wow, well, actually, uh, 250 years ago. And uh, there's, a, there's one of the verses. It, it goes like this. And I won't sing it to you because I'm not ready to empty the house yet. But it says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready waits to save you, full of pity Love and power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. It would be a great song for you to learn and sing here at Summit. It would encourage your hearts. Christ is moved by your suffering, by mine. Third, when Christ heals from sin, it is instantaneous. It is complete and it is irreversible. Instantaneous. Boom. Arise, child. Your sin is forgiven. It's complete. Complete. You are you are pure in Christ, the New Testament tells us. You are you are wrapped in his righteous robe. When God looks upon you, you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he does not see the ugliness of your sin. He sees only the righteousness of Christ. And it is irreversible. It is irreversible. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes, I will certainly not cast out. You are safe and secure in the arms of your Savior. But a question you need to ask yourself as we kind of wind this down is do you know Christ? Have you come to Him to be cleansed from your sin? Have you embraced Him by faith? Trusting that His death, burial, and resurrection was for you on your behalf? If you have. And the New Testament tells you, you are free. You are free. We're going to take communion here together. It's just another delight that I have. When I do it, I get to stand behind the table. You guys do it differently. To stand off the side here. Throw me out of my groove. What is communion? Communion. Why do we do this? A little little piece of cracker, a cup of juice. What's going on? What's all that about? Jesus has given this to us to remind us of something. It's a a memorial service. It's a a reminder. And it's to remind us that he has given himself in our place. That's really what it's all about, right? The, the bread or the cracker, wafer, whatever you want to call the thing, is, is, is an illustration of His body. The juice of His blood. Jesus says over in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 22, He's there on the night in which He is to be betrayed. and He's at the table with His disciples. Judas Iscariot has already left To betray Him. And and Jesus says these things. When He had taken a cup and given thanks, He he said to them, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when He had taken some bread and given thanks, he, He broke it and He gave it to them saying, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup after They had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to eat this meal with you, but this will be the last one. I'm not going to eat again with you until the kingdom of God comes. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that that when we partake this meal together, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until He comes. See, Jesus is coming. Amen? You believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? He is coming. He's coming. And when He comes, these miracles are just a glimpse of the glory that He will bring with Him. You and I, that we will experience when we see Him face to face. So we take, we eat, we drink, we remember. And we long for the return of Christ. See, ushers come and they'll hand out these elements. Here, let me just say this to you. If, if, you, if you're not sure about Jesus yet, you know, you're still in that stage where you're you're figuring it out. You haven't you haven't embraced Him by faith and, and, and placed your full confidence in His death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, then I'd ask you to refrain. Okay, Just let the trays pass you by. No one will think any, anything of it. This is, a, this is a meal for those who know Him. Celebrate together. With one eye looking up. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Him and Him alone that all of our hope resides. We are a people who are broken with sin. We are defiled. We are twisted and bent. Deformed, as it were, and and helpless. And yet at the right time in your good providence. You, you reached forth to us in your mercy and grace. And opened our eyes to see the wonders of your son Jesus. So as we partake now this morning of this, this bread and cup. We do so in full faith and confidence knowing that our sin has been forgiven because of Christ and and that just as sure as He walked this earth, once He is coming again. You have raised Him from the dead. You have seated Him at your right hand and you will send Him back in your good time. And so as we take together, let us be mindful both of what we have now and, and the hope of what we have to come.